welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 40. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, he made a direct voyage to Samothrake and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. He remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gate to the riverside, where he supposed there was a place of prayer, and he sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain for fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept for practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in this house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we uh, come before you in, uh, in great anticipation as we open your word, Lord, because we know that you are so faithful to speak to us. These are your very words. These are words that are inerrant, that speak truth all the time because you are a God of truth, and this is your very word. These words are sufficient to meet all of our needs. Whatever needs we bring here, each individual person, Lord, you meet our needs through your word, through your spirit, which is amazing, and uh, we pray for you to do that. We know, Lord, that your word is necessary that there's no one who will come to truly know you apart from your word. And so we're so thankful that you would bring it to us. And Lord, we know that your word is savory. That whenever we open it with a heart that is good soil, we find that it is so desirable, so good, because it shows us your goodness. That you, Lord, are the greatest good in the universe, the greatest treasure the person that we should all want to be with more than anyone else, to enjoy your presence more than anything else. And so, Lord, when we open your word and we see who you are, it just thrills our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you do that work today, that after seeing you in your word and seeing your love for us, that we wouldn't leave unchanged. Lord, I pray for every single person that's in this room. You know their heart. You know their situation. You know what they struggle with. It'd be impossible for me to speak to every person in this room, and yet you will, by your Spirit, through your Word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would make every heart here good soil for the truth, that your Word would sink down as a seed and grow up into eternal life in them. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we're not here accidentally, that, that you have us here for a purpose. And so we pray, Lord, speak. Speak the way you desire to do through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're going to start a series in Philippians next week, but I thought it'd be really great to look at how the Philippian church started, and what's really neat about this passage in Acts is it actually tells the story of how the church in Philippi started. So the book we're going to start in a little bit, book of Philippians, further along in the New Testament, it's a letter that Paul wrote to these very people 11 years later. So what we see in Acts 16 here is how Paul brought the gospel to that place in the beginning in, in 49 AD. And then what we're going to read for the next few weeks is the letter he wrote 11 years later. So it's really cool just to see that. And one of the interesting things that you may have noticed in verses 6 through 8 is that Paul and Silas didn't actually intend to go to Philippi in the first place. They had left Antioch and they were going to a place called Asia Minor, which is a northern Turkey type area that they were going to. And when they got there, there was a problem. Do you see what it is? Verse 6 says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. So in that northern area of northern Turkey, somehow, we don't know how, the Spirit made it clear, like, don't, don't speak the gospel here. Isn't that interesting? 
And then in verse 7, it says, when we attempted to go to Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow it. This is a problem. This is a problem because these people have just walked 400 miles, 400 miles on foot, to preach the gospel, to only find that God was like, not here. Which is kind of the whole reason they came, to do their kind of, you know, missionary thing. And so they get there, and they're not allowed to do it. Can you imagine how disappointing this would be? This would be like if right now you decided you're going to walk to Utah. Okay? That's the walk they went on. They make this long walk. They get there, and they find that this isn't the place the Lord would have them to minister. And, and perhaps you guys can relate. Perhaps there's some of you who have spent a long time pursuing a certain career path, or you spent a long time pursuing some education path, or perhaps you made some sort of a move. And then you find out later after a lot of difficulty that it's maybe not where the Lord would have you. Super disappointing, super difficult. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. I'm hyper-efficient. I don't like to waste any time whatsoever. But this was not a waste of time. This trip, this 400-mile walk, this walk from here to Utah, was not a waste of time. And And the Lord's not wasting your time either. The Lord has very fruitful ministry for them right around the corner. And I'm sure he does for you as well. None of this time was wasted. The Lord does have a plan, but he's not sharing it yet, which can be quite frustrating. You see them kind of bumping around from town to town, going like, maybe here, no, no, maybe here, no, no, maybe here, no, no. And then all of a sudden, the Lord reveals his plan. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this area of Macedonia they're going to specifically is Philippi. You look in verse 12, leading city in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, so they stayed there for many days. And what's really neat in this chapter is we're going to see three conversions in this chapter. We're going to see the first three people that the Lord saves in Philippi, the beginning of their church. We're going to see Lydia in verse 13. We're going to see a demon-possessed slave girl in verse 16, and then we're going to see the jailer in verse 19. Three very different people that were called in very different ways to follow Christ. And by the way, Acts is like this. It gives a lot of little vignettes, a lot of little case studies of different people coming to Christ so that you can kind of see how different people come to the Lord. But what we're going to see through these three people is that there's there's no Christian type. Oh, well, you're just the Christian type. That's why you follow Jesus. You're kind of the right type. There is no Christian type. You know, the gospel doesn't come naturally to anyone, but it is open to everyone, and it takes the Holy Spirit to actually draw people to himself. There's no Christian type. And what's great about that, guys, is we should not assume that anyone's unreachable. You certainly in your life have certain people that you've categorized as unreachable in your mind. Maybe you've shared the gospel with them a few times already. Maybe you haven't even tried because there's certain things about them that you think, like, this person will put them in the unreachable category. Some of you guys may have put yourself there in the unreachable category. What we'll see here is there's no one unreachable. God calls people to himself, and he does it in a bunch of different ways. It's really, it's really fun to see that in this text, is God's creativity and the way he calls people is really fun to look at here. And I think if we shared our testimonies in this room, we'd find just an immense amount of creativity that God has used in drawing people to himself. So the first person we're going to look at is Lydia. And uh, there's a Lydia in our church. She's back there. She's great. I'm going to talk a lot about Lydia's and Lydia and Lydia this and Lydia that. It's not that Lydia. She's awesome. 
But it's an unusual name. It's not a common name. And so I didn't want to feel like I was talking about Lydia the whole time. You'll see what I mean. So here's Lydia, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed to be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there. One of them heard us, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she was baptized in her whole household as well. And she urged us, if you judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Lydia is the first Christian in Philippi. And we can uh, deduce a few things about Lydia. We can assume that she's probably really financially successful. We know that from verse 14. It says she's a seller of purple goods. Purple dye was very difficult to extract in ancient times, and people that sold purple goods were selling high-end goods to rich people. And so we can assume that Lydia is a person of means. She seems to have her own house that she's able to invite them into, a seller of luxury goods. We can also see that she was moral and religious, and we see that in verse 14. It says that Lydia was a worshiper of God. Now, this is almost a technical term for Gentiles, people who were non-Jews, who were probably polytheistic before, that had come to see that the God of Israel is the true God. And so they would come to synagogue meetings, they would come to places like this, they would study God's word, but they didn't convert fully. They usually weren't keeping kosher. The men that were God-fearers or worshipers of God tended to not get circumcised, you know. So they're, they're there, they believe, they're a little bit on the outside, not keeping the full Mosaic law. So Lydia is an example of someone who is successful and religious, someone who's got her act together, both morally and financially, and yet Lydia is totally lost. She's totally lost. You know, Lydia reminds us that moral religious people need Jesus too, because religion and morality don't save, right? Jesus saves. Um, You can know a whole lot about the Bible and miss the whole point of the Bible. Jesus is the whole point of Scripture. Jesus said this to the religious leaders of his day in John 5. He said this, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, you're like, well, yeah, of course. Then it says, but it is they that bear witness of me. And so those religious leaders, especially famously the Pharisees, were the kind of people who knew a lot of the scripture. And they were very, you know, in general moral people. But they missed the whole point, that the whole Bible points to Jesus. And without seeing that the whole Bible points to Jesus and finding our righteousness in him, we end up in something called moralistic religion. I've got a little chart for this. But there's a big difference, guys, between moralistic religion and the gospel. I mean, some of you guys have probably don't see a difference in that. You think, you know, Christian, maybe you think even Christians are this moralistic religion. But it's different. So moralistic religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Okay? And it'd be very easy for Lydia to have thought this as she's studying the Hebrew scriptures and maybe not understanding about the story of how the Messiah would come and he would be our righteousness. It'd be very easy. It's very easy for people in the church to think, okay, I get it. I study this Bible and I do my best to keep it. And if I can keep it to some reasonable degree, God will accept me. That's not the gospel. That's moralistic religion. The moralistic religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. How many of you guys struggle with that? You know, how many of you guys tend to think that? You know, you tend to think that your acceptance with God, his love of you, your assurance that you're saved depends upon how well you obeyed this week. It's a trap, guys. How much is enough? How much is enough? We know you're not going to do it perfectly. How much is enough? You need 80%? 80% saved? 60% keeping the law? How would you even measure it? 
You don't measure it. You don't know what percentage. We have to give this up as a, as a way of acceptance before God. And so moralistic religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That is totally different, okay? I am accepted, therefore I obey, that the things that I do and I want to serve the Lord and I want to follow him and I want to obey his word is not to try to earn salvation. It's not to try to earn his favor. It's not to try to avoid punishment. It's because I'm just so thrilled by what Jesus has done. That's what the gospel's like. It's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And so, for those of you, maybe you're not a Christian, you know people that are believers, this is what we strive to motivate us, is our acceptance that we already have in Jesus. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, we receive him, we're in him, we're accepted and loved in God, in Christ, and so therefore we want to give him our whole lives. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and so that we want to do that. Moralistic religion is motivated based on fear and insecurity. You know, highlight that insecurity part. You know, people that are in moralistic religion are always insecure about God's love for them because, well, how could you be sure that you've done enough? How much would be enough? You guys realize there's people on the mission field. Like John Wesley's a good example. His first missionary trip out here in the 1700s or whatever, he was not a believer. And he was driven by this, fear and insecurity. He got wonderfully saved later. But he went to the mission field to try and feel okay with God. And he didn't. <laughs> he came home. And he just still didn't feel accepted before God. You can never do enough, right? But in the gospel, our motivation is based on grateful joy. And Jesus has done so much for us, so we want to give him our whole lives. And so Lydia, very likely, because she's hearing the gospel and being transformed by it, is probably in this moralistic religion-type space. There are a lot of Lydia's. They look like they have their act together. You know, they may even know a lot of scripture. They may live pretty moral lives, but like the Pharisees, they're going to be marked by lack of love, a lack of grace for others. They're often going to be judgmental, like the Pharisees were. And judgmentalism is a, is a strategy to feel more accepted before God. You realize that, right? A moralistic religious person views righteousness to God like a ladder. God's at the top. You know, the worst scumbags are at the bottom. And the way you feel better about yourself is by having a lot more people below you. The more people that are morally below you, the more you can feel like you're close to God. That's what judgmentalism is all about. That's the heart of it, right? The heart of it is, if I can judge enough people to be kind of like, you know, below me, then I can elevate myself and feel like I'm acceptable before God. You know, when we believe the gospel, that gets destroyed because we're, we're, on, we're, we're all accepted in Jesus, not by our own works. There is no ladder, you know? There's two rungs of the ladder, you know? There's in condemnation, accepted in God. There's just two spots, you know? It's a, not much of a ladder. So Lydia needs to see that all that she's learned from the Hebrew scriptures actually do point to Jesus. In Jesus, she'll find both her righteousness and her life. And I know as you look at these three people, and you'll see the others, you probably think Lydia's the nearest to the Lord, right? You see a Lydia, but she's not. She's not any closer to the Lord than the slave girl or the jailer because she's just as spiritually dead as the rest of them. Sometimes the, the moral and the religious are the hardest to even talk to about Jesus because they don't see their need, right? You talking about Jesus? Oh, yeah, I already know him. And it's like, you know him as what? You know him as a teacher? You know him as a judge? Do you know him as your righteousness? Do you know him as your only acceptance before God? L Lydia was just as lost as the others. And we can see that in what the Lord had to do for her to believe. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God himself had to open Lydia's heart. And by the way, that's the only way anyone ever comes to Christ, 
is that the Spirit must open the heart. You know, the difference between any person in this room that is saved and is in Christ and isn't, the difference is, is that the Lord opened their heart to cause them to pay attention to the gospel. And this is good news, guys, because this reminds us, this fact that God has to open the heart, that there's no one that's less savable. <laughs> there's no one that's in that box of irredeemable. There's no one in that box of like, oh, there's the more savable ones over here and the less savable ones over here. Because the Spirit has the key to unlock any human heart. God, the creator who made the heart, has the key to every single human heart. And so we should pray for him to use it. You know, as we think about people in our lives that we've kind of perhaps given up on, we should be praying that God would unlock their heart. So Lydia heard the gospel as a gift of Christ's righteousness. The next convert in here, a slave girl, couldn't have been more unlike Lydia, right? Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and had brought her owners much gain by her fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. This slave girl couldn't have been more unlike Lydia, right? Lydia's rich, this woman's a slave. You know, Lydia's moral, this woman's demon-possessed, which I would think you guys would agree is probably the most on the immoral side. You could say that this girl was, as Josh was saying earlier, that she was spiritual but not religious, right? Very spiritual. And while Lydia could move freely in the world, and maybe she had two houses, she seemed to be kind of very mobile, this woman couldn't have been more in bondage to both demons and to slave masters. Uh, the Greek here for a spirit of divination is the Greek pneuma pythona, spirit of python so that's bad right i mean that's bad you know the python was a spirit that uh, was depicted as a snake or a dragon and um, it was said in those times to be able to control especially women give them the ability to fortune tell um, which made her you know her demon possession extremely valuable to her slave masters i mean just think about this poor woman though you know double enslaved right Enslaved from the inside, enslaved from the outside. And, and guys, this is a great opportunity maybe to just remind you of the real presence of demons. You know, demon oppression is very real. And uh, one thing I've noticed, I'm a horse veterinarian, one of the things I've noticed in this area is that people seem pretty into like psychics and spiritualism, consulting mediums and things like that. One of the things that comes up a ton of times is, you know, I'll work a horse up, I'll do its blood work, I'll do all this stuff, right? And then I tell them a diagnosis and they're like, oh, you know what I called the pet communicator? And she said, you should look in the kidneys. And I'm just like, no. Like, on a bunch of levels, no. You know? But one of the things I'll often tell them is I'll say, like, guys, this is not good to mess with. Like, you don't want to be a part of this, right? And a lot of times, you know, when I press people on this, I'm like, guys, this is not good. You don't want to mess with that. And their, their comeback's always this. Oh, don't worry, it's not a scam. They're telling me things that there's no way they could have known. And I'm just like, it would be better if it was a scam, right? This is not something you want to mess with, right? There are only two sources of power, power like that. It's either from the Lord, which they're doing things God's directly commanded not to do, so it can't be the Lord, or it's the devil. There's really no other option. You'd be a lot better off with a scam one than a one that can tell you things. And uh, it's one of the most dangerous things they could possibly be doing, you know? 
one of my clients who actually came to Christ, she was very into this stuff, and, and it, it, it took a while for her to break totally free from it because she had gotten so, so enmeshed in it. But for those who aren't in Christ, guys, demons can do anything they want with you. You guys realize that? They can do anything they want with you. If you're in Christ, you have absolute defense. He'll defend you. The Spirit fills you, and he can't be in there. And that's one of the reasons I think this, it doesn't talk about her getting saved, but this is one of the reasons I think this slave girl did get saved, is because Jesus talked about, like, if demons are cast out and some, something else doesn't fill the space, they'll travel around, and then they'll bring seven of their friends, right? And so I think she got saved in this case. But if you're in Christ, you have defense against this. But if you're not in Christ, they can do anything they want with you. You know, Christ is the solution to freedom from that. And um, Christ will save you from it. And this, this slave girl somehow got inhabited with a demon. This poor girl, she's, she's victimized both spiritually and by humans. It reminds me a lot of some of the girls that uh, Holly works with in Cambodia, one of our missionaries, Holly. She's in Cambodia, and she works with girls that are either caught in sex trafficking or at risk of it. And a lot of times they have literal demons. But even when they don't, I mean, they're a picture of this passage. You know, people that are oppressed both spiritually and humanly. Um, there are a lot of people like this in our valley, people who are oppressed spiritually or relationally. We all know people like her, actually, people that are enslaved in various ways. Maybe you're enslaved to addictions or oppressive relationships or compulsive, destructive habits that you do to yourself. And you look through the Gospels and you see how demons would cause people to harm themselves. People who never can quite seem to break free from evil powers that bind them, whether it's addiction or the powers of other people. And notice that this woman, she needed something different than Lydia. Lydia needed a reasoned discourse about the gospel. She just didn't understand the gospel fully. She just needed to see how, you know, all the Bible points to Jesus. We're a little more comfortable with that kind of ministry. We're like, hey, I got a great book on that. You know, here you go, right? It's an important ministry, though. But this slave girl, she needed to be reached through an encounter of God's power. An encounter of God's power. And um, the reason Paul casts out the demon is really pretty funny. You know, I think it's comical because it's like she's following them around and harassing them. And you might think, like, what's the problem? She's like all in. She's not all in. Okay, she's harassing them. Look at it. Look at verse 17. Well, actually, the demon was harassing him. That's who Paul actually speaks to. Verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation." You might think, oh, cool endorsement. She kept doing this for many days. So that's annoying. You know, like you're in a new place, you're cruising around, trying to get to know people, trying to like make a good first impression, share the gospel with them, and you got crazy demon-possessed slave girl behind you yelling out endorsements. You know, it's not something you want. And so I love how the text gives the motivation, and this is the only text I know of where somebody has a demon cast out and the motivation of the one doing it is annoyance. But at verse 18 it says, Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, <laughs> cast the demon out. Whereas Lydia was reached through a reasoned discourse of the gospel, this slave girl was reached through a power encounter, an encounter of God's power. And I would just say pray for that, guys. There is people in everyone's life here that is in some sort of slavery like she was. And we live in the time of when the kingdom is breaking into this place of darkness. You guys realize, you look through the Old Testament, you don't see a bunch of demons being cast out. Why? Because with the coming of Jesus, the coming of his kingdom, Jesus is now breaking into this world and freeing people in a way they couldn't be freed before. Jesus described it as, um, with the coming of Christ, Jesus said it's like, it's like Satan, this strong man, has been bound, and now the church, through the Spirit, 
is plundering his house. You know, his house is full of people, right? You think of what Jesus has promised, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates are defensive, right? You know, hell's not like, ah, here's the gate, you know? Like, no. The gates are to keep God out, right? It's keep God's people from ransoming people out of slavery to sin. And uh, we live in a time when you can do that. So I would just say pray for it. If you need prayer, please come down. I will this time actually be here, right here in front. And we'd love to pray for you for anything that's, that's got you bound. So the slave girl received the gospel as a message of freedom from oppression. And, and the, the response of the city it, to this amazing miracle is really pathetic. Look at verse 19. But when the, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The city's response to this like, amazing deliverance is like, we don't want to be bothered. We have our way. You know? This is against our customs. This is in our way. Women that are enslaved to humans and demons being set free, it's not our way. We don't want to be bothered. We kind of got our own thing. And I just ask you this morning, perhaps that's you. Perhaps you see people all around you, family members and stuff, that have been radically changed by the gospel, radically changed by Christ. It's impossible for you to deny that Jesus is real and the Spirit is powerful, and yet you don't want to be bothered. You got your thing. It's against my customs. It's against my habits. It's against the things I'm really about. It's sad, guys. Don't be like that. Maybe you need what the jailer's going to get. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened them their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so this is an amazing thing, guys. I mean, Paul and Silas are stripped, humiliated, right? They're stripped down in public. They're, they're beaten, and it's like kind of caned where they put multiple rods together and like whack them with it. And, they, and they, they beat them so hard that we find out later, like the jailer washes the wounds. So, you know, they have bloody, oozing wounds. And then these stocks, you know, you're thinking of like the, sto- the stocks. This is stocks they put the legs in, and they put the legs like too far apart to kind of stretch them. So actually, it's a form of torture. And so here they are, stripped, beaten, you know, being stretched in these stocks. And what are they doing? They're singing. Isn't that awesome? A third century African theologian, Tertullian, said this, The legs feel nothing when the heart is in heaven. Isn't that awesome? These prisoners were noticing. They were hearing it. You know, they're seeing these people come in. They've just been beaten up, putting stocks and all this. And they're singing and they're praising God. And uh, we'll see, too, that probably the jailer's hearing this as well. I want to say to you guys who are, like, in a place of great suffering, you know, you're in a place of great suffering right now, whether it's relationally or physically or whatever, and you still show up every week to worship God in public, like, it's a sign, guys. It's a sign to those around you. It's a sign to the world that Christ is real. I just want to say, like, when I see that in people, it's just like, this is heroic, you know? And what you're doing when you show up every week and you come, or every week you can, maybe you're in so much pain and difficulty that, you know, there's only some weeks you can come, and we get that as well. But you come, and 
it's an obvious sign that Christ is real. It's a sign that Christ is real to me, you know? My life's easy, you know, to see things people are going through and see them just come to worship against all odds and difficulty. It's just like Paul and Silas here, guys. The world notices, you know? Not only the, the physical world, the spiritual world notices. Jesus notices. And so we've seen Lydia get saved. We've seen the, the slave girl and now the jailer. Take a look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bounds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that this, the prisoners had escaped. This jailer is most likely a former Roman soldier. I say that because Philippi was kind of a retirement colony for a lot of ex-military people, and Rome would often give like kind of fairly cushy civil servant jobs to their veterans, so it's very likely he was a, a Roman soldier before this. The jailer is unlike Lydia and the slave girl because, you know, Lydia's life, as far as we know, is go- she's real successful. You know, the slave girl, her life's a mess. His life is neither a success or a mess. He's just kind of a working, kind of regular guy. And the jailer is a hardworking, kind of blue-collar man. A rough man, you know. He was a soldier. He's now a jailer. He's occasionally a torturer, apparently. Though he's a rough guy. But he's a guy, what matters to him? What matters to him is honor and duty, right? You know, Lydia's off looking into the things of God by the riverside because she's trying to, like, she's kind of a, a religious seeker there. You know, the slave girl's in another place. But this guy's just doing his job, you know. Just that guy does his job cares about honor and duty, cares about doing what he's called to do. Probably doesn't have particular feeling of need for God, you know? No evidence he's a seeker. Wasn't like when Paul and Silas are singing in the night, he's like, hey, what's up with this, you know? He hears it, but not that interested. Each of these people, guys, seem like they would be tough to reach in a different way. You know, Lydia's already got her religion. The slave girl's like too messed up to even reach. You know, the jailer's not really interested in spiritual things. But in every case, the Lord knows how to open the heart because he's the maker of the heart. He has the master key. And so here we have this jailer. He probably doesn't have, feel any need for God at this moment until the Lord shakes his life up, both physically and figuratively. Look at verse 23 again. And suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bounds were unfastened. And then look at how he responds. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You think, well, like, why would this jailer, like, this is kind of a quick move, you know, to kill himself. What's going on here? Well, you got to remember this guy lives in a shame-honor culture. It's not like you just slink away and get another job. And you're in a job like this, there's certain duty. And not only would his supervisors have maybe killed him, punished him very severely, the shame of it, the shame of what he had just done, was unbearably punishing in and of itself. The shame honor culture. He's lost his honor. What's he going to do? He's going to end his life. We have cultures like that now. People are very quick to kill themselves when they, you know, they don't measure up. You you hear about this kind of thing happening in parts of Asia and stuff like that. You know, you failed in your job. You failed a bunch of people. Maybe you're a politician that failed and you kill yourself, you know. His thought would have been like, if I can't fulfill my duties, what good is my life, right? He would have thought, in in his eyes, his shame and failure deserve death. And and just when the jailer is about to kill himself, there's this great act of sacrificial love. Take a look at verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. 
You know, Paul could have left, right? Doors are open, and that happens. Other parts in Acts, you know, they're free and they run out, right? He didn't. He stayed. Paul, who had been so brutally and shamefully treated by these people, stayed. He stayed in, in the jail so that the jailer would be saved from his own shame and death. What explains this? <laughs> I mean, this guy just puts you, stretched you in stocks with your bloody wounds. Like, what explains this kind of sacrificial love? And what explains it is that Paul was a disciple, a student of Jesus, and he's following the way of his master. Jesus, who like Paul, had traveled a very long way to reach us. Like Paul, Jesus wasn't given the honor that he deserved by the rulers of this world. Like Paul, Jesus' miracles didn't exactly win over those who were in power. No matter who Jesus was, they simply were not going to have their lives disrupted. Jesus, like Paul, was stripped and beaten and fastened to wood. But Jesus, unlike Paul, was, was actually you know, nailed to a cross. He wasn't, he wasn't bound to stocks. He was bound to a Roman cross. He was bound with nails. Jesus, like Paul, didn't use his privilege to avoid that suffering. You see later in the text that Paul decides to tell him then that he's a Roman citizen, which is kind of a weird deal, you know, like, probably pull that card earlier. But he mentions it later. Jesus, like Paul, didn't use his privilege to avoid suffering, you know. Jesus was God in the flesh, and they had no right to treat him like this, just like the city had no right to treat Paul the way they treated him. But like Paul, Jesus did not use his privilege to avoid the cross. It reminds me of one of the most famous passages in the book of Philippians, which is where we're going to be next week. We won't be in this text, but we'll be in Philippians. In Philippians 2.5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, having taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't use his privilege as God to escape suffering. Um, Paul had a way out, right? He didn't take it. Jesus had a way out. He didn't take it, right? He didn't take it. Jesus chose to stay. He chose to stay on the cross until all of your sins were paid, until all of your shame and death was removed. You know, it, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus there. It was his love for you. At any moment, he could have escaped, and he didn't. He stayed there for you. So how do we learn to love our enemies like Paul did? We do by seeing that Jesus loved you, his enemy, when you needed it most. He took away all your shame and death. And he only calls us to do likewise. And we all have people in our lives that we need to, to serve and love who are our enemies. But Jesus died for his enemies. And so Paul and Silas, in this little moment, when the jailer comes to, to Christ, Paul and Silas, their worship showed the jailer the joy of the gospel, right? Their worship in the middle of the night showed the jailer the joy of the gospel. Their staying in the prison showed the jailer the love of the gospel. And now their answer to his question is going to show him the message of the gospel. Let's take a look at that. Because the lost need all that from us, right? They need to see the joy of the gospel. They need to see our love for them, love of the gospel, and they need to hear the message of the gospel. And so it says in verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell before Paul and Silas. Then he, he brought them out and said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, it's very important to listen very carefully to the answer to this question, okay? So the question is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because people say, maybe in college classes or your friends say this or whatever, you know, all religions are basically the same, right? They're all basically the same. They all tell us to be good and, 
you know, teaches about some kind of God, except for Buddhism, that doesn't have one. But they're all basically the same, right? All these religions are basically the same. They're not the same when it comes to answer to this question. I really want to say, probably the most important question. Is this the most important question? This is, and who is God, right? The most important questions. And the answer is not the same as any other religion. So listen to it. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. That's a different answer, guys. He's not like, well, we got a plan. I'm going to give you a book of rules. You're going to kind of work on this. We'll see how you do. Like, we don't really know until you die. It's going to be a bit of a surprise. Sorry about that. Right? No. It's believe in him and be saved. This is amazing. It's a gift, right? So look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. And he and his whole household. And he brought them out into his house and set before them food. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that they had believed in God. That's so cool. It says that the jailers washed Paul and Silas's wounds, right? And what's really neat is this theme of washing. So they're washing Paul and Silas's wounds, and yet the jailer got the greater washing, right? Got all of his sins washed away, and then later he gets baptized as a symbol of that. And so this Philippian church, this is how it started, right? It started with three people that have nothing in common but Jesus, right? These people have nothing. These guys weren't hanging out at the coffee shop together, right? Like, hey, slave girl, want to meet up? You know, like, no, right? Not happening. They have nothing in common but Jesus, which is like many of us. I think if you think through us, how many of us would know each other? How many of us would have these deep relationships if we didn't have Jesus? Very few of these. My closest friendships in the church would not have happened without Jesus. And so what does it show? It shows that God's calling a diversity of people. You know, in Paul's day, there was a popular prayer that men would pray, and it went like this. Blessed are you, God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Paul would have prayed this. And then what is he? He's sitting around the table too. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Isn't that awesome? This is totally amazing, right? The beginning of the Philippian church shows us that the gospel's for everyone. There is no Christian type, right? We need to get that out of our heads. There's no Christian type. It's not just for the religious or the irreligious. It's not just for the rich or the poor. It's not just for the moral or the immoral. The gospel doesn't come naturally to anyone, but it's for everyone. And the Spirit can open anyone's heart. And so maybe you're a Lydia, you know? Maybe you were a Lydia. Maybe you're still a Lydia. Maybe you're a saved Lydia. How many of you guys would identify with her story? That, you know, kind of moral, religious, but, you know, didn't really understand the gospel. And then somehow you found out, somebody shared with you, that Jesus is the point of all scripture, you know, and your righteousness. The Lydia's, they raise their hands like this, apparently. So how many of you guys would identify with that story? That's what I would identify with, too. That's how I came into that, too. How many of you guys would identify with the slave girl? You know, your background was immoral, oppressed, addicted, under the power of other people, or under the power of evil, or of uh, substances, or things like that. Not seeing any way out, right? And then Jesus gave you the power to be free. How many of you guys relate to that? Don't you guys relate to that? These guys are more likely to raise their hands higher. How many guys would, would relate to the jailer? You're like, never into spiritual things. You just kind of do your work, work hard, kind of fulfill your duty. And then God just kind of like shook your life up, and you received his love. How many of you guys 
Jailer types. All right, cool. Some of you guys are a mixture. Some of you guys maybe read Acts. Find your own person. Maybe you're an Ethiopian eunuch or something. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. That'd be hard to get you to raise your hand for. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about it. All right. But Jesus saves in a variety of ways, right? Like Lydia. It was like just a better understanding, which, you know, a lot of people like that. Whereas a slave girl, she needed to be set free from her slavery. And the jailer, you know, he, he needed to see the love of God. And so what binds us together, guys, as a church family is what bound them together, which is the love of Jesus. And now, like, Paul kind of set them and said, like, peace out. See you guys. I'm rolling. Have a good time being in the church. And they're like, uh, we're not ready. Jesus leaves us here, right? And he says, you know, be the church in my power, by my spirit. This morning we gather around the table the way they did at Lydia's house, right? We've come to receive the Lord's Supper, to be strengthened, to be his people, to be his, his diverse church, to be the kind of people in this valley that seek out other Lydia's and slave girls and jailers. So over the next few weeks, we'll be in Philippians. Months? Long time. We'll stay as long as we want. No one's going to make us leave. But we're going to see how we can faithfully live out the mission like they did. So let's pray. Father, as we reflect back on how you saved us, we're just uh, immensely grateful. It's obviously that you have chosen us to follow you, follow Christ, to, to be in Christ, to receive his grace and mercy. And that's stunning when we really sit back and think about it. And as Paul came hundreds of miles to to reach out to these people. You had your sight set on us from eternity past. Sent your son to die for our sins, to remove all of our sins, and to fill us with his righteousness in your spirit. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, we pray that that reality would rock us so much that we would just be willing to walk 400 miles like Paul was, willing to walk with people, willing to seek people out. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful presence here. And I thank you, Lord, for these people that you have done that. And I pray you do it more and more. Praise in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.